Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome in to another Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We are here to kick off the American League portion of this podcast series today with the Baltimore Orioles. To do that, I am joined by my friend and longtime colleague, John Mioli, the Orioles columnist for the Baltimore Banner, formerly the Orioles beat writer for the Baltimore Sun, and a longtime author of the Orioles chapter for us and the BA Prospect Handbook. John, good to see you, my friend. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on again. Yeah, absolutely. John is a, a freelance staple for us now. Again, he knows this organization top to bottom. He's done the beat. He's been a columnist. He's uh, seen really, I mean, the entire trajectory of the Orioles over the last decade or so. You were covering them when they were a playoff team, making the postseason three times in five years, had the most wins in the American League of any team from 2012 to 2016. Then bottomed out with uh, some really, really difficult seasons. And now they're on the way back up. John, there was a lot of skepticism about the Orioles' rebuild, the way they were going about it. They were kind of following the Cubs-slash-Astros model of draft hitters and acquire the pitching later on, except they were doing the drafting hitters part, but they weren't really acquiring the pitching in terms of the big free agent contracts or the big-name trades. It seemed like they were kind of trying to piecemeal it together with some under-the-radar types and hoping to maximize them. And that led to a lot of skepticism whether their rebuild plan would work. And we saw last year that it did work. They won 101 games. They won the American League East title for the first time since 2014, got back to the playoffs for the first time since 2016. And what really stood out was, again, the fact that so many position players really, really blossomed. Again, Gunnar Henderson being rookie of the year, Adley Rutschman turning in a 20-homer season, all the way down to you know guys like Austin Hayes, Ryan Mountcastle, Anthony Santander, who were there before. That wasn't a huge surprise. What I think was a huge surprise was Kyle Bradish turning into one of the best pitchers in the American League. We saw Grayson Rodriguez really, really turn things on the second half of last year. And we saw a bullpen that was built fairly anonymously really become one of the best in the American League. Felix Bautista, before he suffered a season-ending elbow injury. Anir Cano, who was a throw-in in a trade with the Twins at last year's deadline, became one of the best setup men in the, in the, in the majors. Dean Kremer, starter, was a solid. Tyler Walter, Rule 5 pick, was solid. It seemed like they got more from their pitchers than expected. When you look at kind of just how the Orioles did this, what are your overall thoughts on on – how it all came together. You, you know, as this was happening last year, and this team is winning 100 games and making the playoffs, you know, the way that I kind of always 
kept saying and it was like it felt like it took forever but like it also given how things were progressing for a while like it happened really fast um i don't i think you're right in that the pitching side was really really hard to envision it going as well as it did um kyle bradish is a guy who you know the orioles were higher on than pretty much everyone else when they traded for him for dylan bundy um and they let him kind of figure out how to pitch in the big leagues. That kind of coincided with them getting good in the second half of, of 2022. You know, Grayson Rodriguez, same thing, had some growing pains, came back and did it. It, it. it feels very organic. I don't want to say that that this is exactly how they envisioned it because I don't, I'm not sure that it is. I, I think that I think that you know last year was ahead of their expectations. I think they thought they would be good. I think they were really concerned that you know, it's hard to sustain what they did the year before and make that huge improvement. And then to build on it again is even harder to do. Um, so, so I don't want to say that this was all according to plan, but I think that their plans are very sound. You know, they don't have a type of pitcher. They have ways to improve the guys that they have. They have traits that they look for that they know they can improve and they know they could work with and, and how to use those pitches, like certain pitches in certain counts so on the pitching side it's very sound you know on the hitting side they really took steps forward and in, in giving guys the chance to play um and that you know when they're bad you know austin hayes played a ton ryan malcastle played a ton anthony santander played a ton like you mentioned those guys became you know staples all-stars in austin hayes case and the young guys came up and did exactly what we we're supposed to do when you're a first round pick and, and you know put it all together and you have a team that wins 101 games in in the al east yeah, and I think, you know, you made your point about in some ways it felt like it took forever. This was a team that had six straight seasons of finishing either fourth or fifth in the American League East. Uh, you mentioned all those top draft picks. Again, they picked number one overall in 2019. They picked number two overall in 2020, fifth overall 2021, first overall again in 2022. So it was a lot of years of just ugliness. Uh, it finally broke through. We saw them get swept in the American League Division Series by the eventual champion Texas Rangers, and some of that was the youth of their starting staff, and Kyle Bradish, Grayson Rodriguez, Dean Kramer. I mentioned this on our postseason podcast. They didn't have a, a single pitcher on their staff that had started a playoff game, and it's a lot to ask of a bunch of young starters to go into the postseason for the first time and shut down really what was the American League's best lineup last year in the Rangers. They got swept, but you can see it being a building block for them next year, full year back from John Means potentially as well, which will help. What do you envision the next steps are for this Orioles team and, and where can they realistically go from here? I, I think the next steps are kind of just, gosh, it's, it's so boring to say, but staying the course. But, you know, there's so much in there already that you can look at and be like, there is upside, you know, on this roster in this organization. Um you know, on the pitching side, I think that, you know, the next month or so before spring training starts is pretty much going to define whether their offseason is considered good or bad because they haven't made any kind of addition to the starting rotation. And I'm sure they're sitting there with a whiteboard that goes pretty deep in starting pitching in their office. You know, Bradish, Rodriguez, you know, John Meads, Kramer. Do you have D.L. Hall and Tyler Wells still in that in that mix? Is Cole Irvin st still, you know, that type of person? you're looking at, I think I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting someone, you know, they have options since, you know, in the rotation if they want it, but there is, you know, there is a hole in what you mentioned in the, you know, that 
veteran guy who's been there before and has done it before. They had that in Kyle Gibson uh, last year. They had it in, in Jordan Lyles the year before, and that was meaningful for, for the young pitchers in this organization. But the guys who can meaningfully upgrade this rotation are, are costly, whether it's costly in, in dollars, costly in players. And and this is the Orioles have gotten to this point by being very, very strict adherence to, you know, their own internal valuations and, you know, the projections that they go off of um, to deviate that from that is not something they've done, honestly, in, in the five years of Michael Elias's tenure. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of upside within the roster, you know, basically every young player could, you know, has the potential to have a better 2024 than they did 2023. Um, Jackson holiday is probably going to play a ton of games for this team. Um, you know, guys who weren't really part of the starting rotation, you know, John means DL hall, um, Tyler Wells basically fell off a cliff in the second half. You know, there's a lot of upside, but is that going to be good enough? And can they realistically get through another season relatively healthy and having what they have in house be enough? I think that's going to be the main question. And, and we're going to know a lot more about, you know, this off season a month from now. Yeah. To follow up on that, there's obviously been a lot said by the, John Angelos about their financial limitations, what spending he is willing to incur. Some of his statements certainly have not gone over great with fans, especially in regards to what payroll might look like, uh, the teams he admires to be like the Rays and Brewers who consistently lack the horsepower to get through a postseason run. Acquiring some of these front of the rotation pitchers, like you said, will be costly, whether it's in free agency, but even in a trade, you are trading prospects and absorbing higher salaries. Do you sense there's a willingness there on behalf of ownership? Because I think we can acknowledge that the Orioles have the pieces to make whatever move they want, but it does seem like the financial constraints might prevent them from doing so. Yeah, I, I think that's true. Um, you know, I think that I think that the financial aspect is more you know, on a long-term free agent, you know, you're not going to get a a needle mover for the front end of your rotation um, on a short, cheap contract for reasonable value because everybody wants those guys. Everybody wants those guys. Um, I think that, you know, and and that's the challenge of of their offseason is to upgrade the rotation. What does that mean? Does that mean that whoever you start the season with as your fifth starter is better than Tyler Wells? Like that could mean a lot of different things. Does that mean upgrade the front end of your rotation so that you have someone who's pitching, you know, one of the first two games of a playoff series instead of Kyle Bradish or Grayson Rodriguez? That means something different. So there's a lot of different ways to do it. I think that so I so I think that, you know, there is probably going to be capacity to add payroll. I I I, I don't know. Uh, we're like a year on from being told that the Orioles books were imminently going to be open to the media. I still have no, I still have no uh, intimate knowledge of their finances, but it's, it's really hard for me to believe like this team's payroll still isn't even at a hundred million dollars, even with the Craig Kimbrell signing. Um, it stands to reason that it could go higher and it should go higher. I think there, I think it's, a, I think because it is pretty much widely accepted that they have the capital player wise to go out and get any, anyone you know they want to on the trade market i think that's honestly more challenging because the orioles still think these players are good too and it's really hard to negotiate with a team if you have like a frontline starting pitcher and you're saying 
you're asking for, you know, you know that the top couple guys are going to be off limits, you know, Jackson holiday, maybe a Basayo or a Mayo. But if you're going down like four, five, six, seven, eight, and they're just saying, nope, nope, nope. Even if the ninth best Orioles prospect is as good as another team's third best prospect, like that's a really tough negotiation to be taking part of if you're giving away a good major league player. And I think the Orioles, you know, are going to need to find a deal that fits their valuation system. It's going to be really hard to do. Um, not to say that they can't do it, um, but it's just a matter of like how how uneven they want they're they're going to let that scale get to make a deal to help the 2024 Orioles. Yeah, you mentioned their payroll as of today. This recording, their forty uh, man roster payroll would be eighty point five million dollars. That's currently twenty eighth among the thirty teams in the major leagues. And you know, I've written about this extensively. If you want to win a World Series, you really can't be in the bottom ten of payroll. It almost never happens, and you almost always have to be in the top half of payroll. The top half marker right now is about one hundred and fifty million dollars or so, and essentially the Orioles would almost have to double their current payroll to get there reasonably. What do you think the payroll number could get to? Cause again, just every statement John Angelos has made just the way they do things. It doesn't seem like they ever want to get there, even if it means potentially missing their window to win a world series. How high do you think they'll be willing to go? Because it does make a difference whether you're at 120 versus 80. Yeah. I mean, I think that 120 range is, you know, within, the run of play. I mean, if they're, I think this year's team had like $25 billion in arbitration raises from 23 to 24, just on projections and some of the few contracts they've signed, you know, ahead of the deadline this week, that's going to keep, that's going to keep happening. You know, when, when, when Adley Rutschman is arbitration eligible, he's going to go from 800,000 to 8 million really quick. And like there, there's going to be, there's going to be, you know, those, those big jumps, those guys who, frankly, deserve to be paid more than they're paid um, on, on the rookie scale. And I think that, you know, I think that there's some kind of weird, like not weird, there's a middle ground between like <clears throat> John Angelos telling the New York Times that the Orioles can't, you know, sign a player to like a $150 million, $200 million extension and the Orioles' actual willingness to pay them, you know, what they're going to get in arbitration. You know, good teams pay guys $10, $15, 20000000 million, you know, towards the end of arbitration all the time. Um, my hope is that they'll do that. I think there's no reason not to. Um, and, and I think maybe part of the reason they're being so judicious now in, in free agency and adding those higher salaries is to keep some powder dry. So that's not a tough decision in, in two, three years time, but that doesn't really make anybody feel better about the 2024 Orioles. It's just, it's, it's just kind of, you know, the reality it seems like they're operating in now as we're getting close to, you know, the eight year anniversary of the Chris Davis contract that kind of hangs over the walls in the warehouse, like, you know, something scary. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I think it'll be really, really interesting to see what kind of moves they make. As we've talked about, they certainly have the prospects to deal for some frontline starting pitching. They certainly want to keep some capital free to give these players raises, keep them in Baltimore for the long term. Um, whatever moves they make financially the next two or three years are going to be fascinating to watch. John, moving into this farm system, one of the things that has been really impressive is, and to be clear, the Orioles tanked intentionally. That's why they got so many high picks. But you have to hit on those high picks. And the Orioles have done a really nice job of continuing to backfill their farm system. Most teams, if you graduated Grayson Rodriguez, Adley Rutschman, Gunnar Henderson, all in a two-year span, your farm system would drop 
pretty heavily just because, again, these guys are no longer prospects. They're in the major leagues. At various points, these guys were all top 10 prospects in baseball. And the Orioles have done a nice job of continuing to draft and develop well to the point that you can graduate guys like that. This is still going to be a top two or three farm system in baseball, led, of course, by the number one prospect in baseball, Jackson Holiday. How do you assess the overall strength of the Orioles system right now? Uh, strengths, weaknesses, you know, overall depth, kind of what's your take on it right now, just given the graduations they've had, but also the talent still remaining? Yeah, I think I think the clear strength is, you know, in the high minors, basically on the AAA roster at this point. Um, there are a ton of both hitters and pitchers, honestly, at this point, who are close to, if not already, major league ready. And that's a really interesting position for them to be in. You know, Jackson Holiday spent a month at AAA, just turned 20. Um, so, so there's probably a little more seasoning required there. But their top 10 is very, very concentrated in the high minors. Um, Samuel Basayo, the number two prospect, made it all the way to Bowie in his full season debut last year. Um, another teenager. Um, Kobe Mayo got the triple A in the second half. There's a ton of talent in the high minors and the way that they got, especially those hitters there is, you know, through consistency, there is, there's an understanding at every organ level of the organization, whether it's scouting player development, um, you know, the analysts in the office, they know that they need to be in total alignment. So, you know, the hitting coaches and the hitting coordinators and the people, you know, who are going to be with these players on a daily basis are involved in the scouting. They're 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 in meetings or head of the draft saying, Can we can can we work with this guy? Does this trait work? Does we like this? And and those are the players that end up in the organization and who end up moving through it quickly because there is that alignment. And I think, you know, if you're gonna call it a weakness, you can say that there's still not as much starting pitching in the organization and in the higher reaches of the prospect list as there would be. Um, I, I think if you stack it up by, by grades and, and, you know, how you guys would do it, if you have, when you put the whole 30, I don't know how you do it with the 30, you know, lists across a spreadsheet by grade. And like, I think there's probably a decent amount of quality on the Orioles, you know, pitching depth chart, but it's taken a little longer for that system and that process to, to play out. They are, they didn't really use high picks on pitchers until this past year. So what they do have is, you know, promising pitchers they acquired through trades and guys who are taken on the third day of the draft, those guys are naturally going to take a little bit longer to, to come good. And, and I think that's kind of the next step. If we're talking about next steps, you know, there's going to be some real meaningful jumps, I think in the next year on pitchers coming out of the Orioles system who, you know, have the talent and the traits that they look for and, and possibly could start moving as quickly as some of the hitters have. I'm pretty interested to see if they actually do that. You know, pitchers are on a pretty methodical development plan in this organization. Um, and it's gone pretty well, but, you know, I think everyone who follows the Orioles and follows the Orioles farm system would love to see somebody who, you know, just shoot through the system like some of the hitters do, because that would be pretty fun to watch. Yeah, and to your point, eight of the top nine prospects in this organization are all hitters. And atop that list is Jackson Holiday. He finished the year as the number one prospect in baseball force at Baseball America. Without giving anything away, I would say it's a fairly safe <laughs> assumption. He'll be the number one prospect still for the 2024 top 100. Holiday was the number one overall 
pick in the 2022 draft and it was really a a meteoric rise he was a good prospect going into his senior year again the son of all-star matt holiday was known was on the showcase circuit but was kind of seen as you know talented need to add strength going into his senior year he was seen as more like a back of the first round type of talent and he just blossomed his senior year physically everything ticked up got stronger got faster and really established himself as the fastest riser in the draft class and ultimately By the end of it, a lot of people thought, yeah, this is the best player in the draft class. The Orioles took him. Mike Elias on draft night, I remember writing about it, said he was our favorite guy. They liked a lot of players at the top of the draft, but for them, he had really separated himself. And we've seen that rapid rise continue in pro ball. He went from, again, a good player to the best player in the draft in a matter of about eight months in high school. And then... His first full season shot all the way from low A to triple A. It was an unprecedented rise in a lot of ways for a high school draftee in his first full year to finish the year in triple A like he did. What strides did Jackson Holiday take last year? And what does he project to be now as a player? Because it feels like the ceiling keeps increasing. Yeah. Um, gosh, I mean, so so many strides in so many areas. I think that you're starting with, you know, like a like a tremendously high makeup player in person. Um, and incredibly, you know, the com- a, a really good combination of like driven and sorry, I should say drive and aptitude. And, you know, he wants to get better. He is incredibly motivated to improve. And he's also able to do that. You know, they sent him home last year. You know, he was obviously great after he was drafted, you know, because he's, he's a really good player. Um, and they said, you know, you're hitting the ball like you're, you have a lot of like pop ups, basically high fly balls. You know, those, those aren't going to turn into anything. Um, so as you're going home and you're adding strength, let's focus a little more on line drives. Does that perfectly. He's in Delmarva for like two weeks or three weeks at the beginning of the season. He's destroying the level. There's nothing, you know, if he had just done exactly what he did the first two weeks, he, in the third week, he still would have gotten promoted, you know, before, before like that, that was, you know, going to happen. But you know, and I tell this story, I went down to see them in Fredericksburg, Virginia, playing the Nationals team. It was the third week of the season. He's got an OPS that starts with a one. Um, and the hitting coach told me that basically he went to him in between the Sunday game and the Tuesday game and said, I'm, I feel like I'm missing balls. I should be driving and pulling. And they watched some video, you know, because he, he knows, you know, his dad was in the big leagues. He knows pull side power is the way to go. You need pull side power to make in the show, even if you're in, in a ball. And he... They basically broke down some film. They saw exactly what they needed to do. Worked on the cage down below, go out to BP, and he just starts tanking balls like pull side over the right field wall. Happened a couple days later in the game. A couple days later, he's in Aberdeen, and like you're just you you go from there. So it's a small story, but he was able to basically accomplish everything that you know the Orioles asked of him, and that he wanted to. And 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 to to I guess wrap up that point, you know his dad created an Instagram account about like them hitting. I'm sure you've seen it and follow it. Like it's basically a glimpse into the Orioles, like pregame batting cage sessions that, you know, every single, it's the same drills. He's doing the stuff at home with his dad who never saw any of this stuff when he was a player. It was just, you know, guys standing really close to him behind a net and hucking the ball as fast as they could. And like, that was what made you, you know, that was what helped you get better. Now he's doing all this stuff and there's so much growth still, still in there. I think you're talking about a super high ceiling player as it goes forward you know it's not a matter of if he can play shortstop it's a matter of will he play shortstop for the Orioles with Gunnar Henderson and you know a host of other guys who are really really capable shortstops in the organization um you know it might not be like 
incredible in-game power, but it's going to be a ton of doubles, a ton of line drives. She's going to get on base because he has a really, really good eye, better than the Orioles even expected. And, and that's, that's you know, they, they fill out all-star rosters with guys like that. You know, some of them play. Some of them play deep in October. It's kind of, you know, they already have foundational transformational players and he, he could just easily be another one. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we have a 70 on him at baseball America, the grade of a perennial all-star, the kind of guy that can lead a franchise. And and I think there's really no doubt he's going to hit. And there's no doubt that he'll make the place needs to make defensively at whatever position he ends up at. But you made the point that the Orioles have a lot of shortstop options. Realistically, where do you think Jackson Holiday will end up playing for the most part defensively for the Orioles if you had to handicap it? It's it's challenging because like there are so many moving pieces and like is Jordan West is he playing on an infield with Westberg and Henderson? Is he plays Kobe Mayo at third base? You know, I think that he can capably play shortstop. I think that he would be an elite second baseman, and I think that you you know. You feel great about him there, but to say that about somebody who, you know, is like a true shortstop after one full season is, you know, and say, okay, he's going to be a second baseman just because there's other guys like it feels dismissive to me, but it's, it's a, it's a realistic question. It's a realistic question. And I think they're probably, you know, my gut tells me if we're sitting, like if, if, if it's June and, you know, Gunnar Henderson is healthy and Jackson holiday is on the roster and Jordan Westberg is, is there, you know, he's going to play. He's gonna if they have a four game series, he's gonna play three different positions in that series, and that's just kind of be that's kind of gonna be what they do. That's kind of what they did, even with the guys they had on the roster this year. Uh, um, and Jackson Holiday are gonna want to get in the lineup as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly an exciting player who uh, should be in Baltimore very early this year, barring injury, and someone we're all excited to see. All right, John. There's a lot of prospects in this organization who are very, very talented. I want to talk to you about. Uh, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll jump right into them. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. All right, welcome back to the Baseball America Top 10 Prospects podcast, breaking down the Baltimore Orioles farm system. I'm Kyle Glazer alongside John Mioli. All right, John, we talked about the Orioles from kind of a 30,000-foot view as well as their number one prospect, Jackson Holiday. Another prospect that in almost any other system would be their number one prospect is Samuel Basayo. Basayo was the guy that kind of represented the Orioles' return to the international market. They had more or less stopped scouting internationally. They jumped back into it. In 2021, they signed him for $1.3 million. That was a club record uh, in terms of international bonus, which is saying something because that's a figure that's maybe half to a third of a lot of other clubs' international signing bonus records, but it just shows you kind of where the Orioles were. And he was considered a top international prospect at the time, certainly a good player, but he's even exceeded expectations. You mentioned it earlier in the show. First full year, got up to double A, hit for average, hit for power. I mean, just showed tremendous ability offensively. What do the Orioles have here? How did this kind of come together so quickly? Yeah, I mean, to take the second part of that first, I mean, I think it's challenging. You you know better than, than I would. I just have this one, you know, kind of Orioles focused, you know, perspective on it, but it seems like, especially since minor league baseball contracted, there is such a wide gulf in talent between the complex league and low a, um, you know, the Orioles really had little to no success transitioning players, um, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, some exceptions, but, but not as not that many. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not indictment on anyone. That's just a huge gulf in talent and, and, circumstances and and it's really hard and they were confident that Samuel Visayo was going to be able to make that transition um he bought into everything that they've wanted him to do in terms of swing decisions which is obviously a huge part of how the Orioles develop hitters um he's incredibly strong he makes really really good contact and over the course of the year it just kind of fed on itself you know he was a player on talking to some people down in the spring training, you know, or at the beginning of the season, they said, you know, he might have those growing pains that everyone else does, but if he gets off to a good start and it's happening for him, it's just going to keep happening. And it really snowballed in a, in, in a positive way, you know, Aberdeen, their, their high A ballpark is a really, really hard place for, for hitters. You know, Heston Kerstad didn't hit for a lot of power there, you know, guys hit, but it's got artificial turf. It's huge in center field and the gaps. It's really hard to hit the ball out of. And he, he destroyed that park in that level. Um, you know, really, really, you know, impressive, like top that exit velocities, um, the swing decisions stay good. He is, he's a really impressive player. Um, I think there's still a lot of upside. Um, he's good enough to be a catcher on the same roster as Adley Rutschman, which is to say, you're not going to have to catch that much. Um, and he's, he, he's going to hit, um, He's the guy you'd hear about, and he's the guy that went through the Orioles' low minors. He was the guy they were asking about and telling you about. And and as the season went on, that kind of only grew. Yeah, and again, he's one of many, many 
hitting prospects for the Orioles that just had really fantastic years last year. We talked about Jackson Holiday. Samuel Pesaia was one of the best hitters in the minors. Kobe Mayo had a bounce back year. He had a really, really rough 2022 bounce back in a big way last year. Heston Kerstad had quietly one of the better seasons in the minors as a hitter, made his major league debut. But as you've talked about, there's no shortage of good hitters, both on this major league roster or in this farm system. We knew that coming in and and these guys are all continuing to perform. The question once again is just on the pitching side. And as we talked about eight of the top nine prospects in this farm system are hitters. The lone pitcher in that group is DL Hall, who's been a longtime staple of the top 10. He made his major debut in 2022, got a more extended look in 2023. Again, it's been almost exclusively in relief in the majors. He's pitched in 29 games and thrown 33 innings. He's had one start and 29 appearances. So we've talked for many years about, look, this is probably a reliever between the health, the control uh, just isn't there. He threw strikes in the majors in a relief role back in AAA in a starting role. Again, didn't throw strikes, 30 walks and 49 innings. What should be expected from D.L. Hall here? Because you did mention him at the top of the show among the guys who could potentially be starters. Is there still any starter hope there? Because it feels like that's been talked about for years and it's just never, ever, ever actually come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I, I, the, the paper is faded on my D.L. Hall starting pitcher stock. You know, it's been around for so long. I've, I've just sitting in my wallet there waiting to wait for me to cash it in. Um, I think that this is probably it on figuring that out. You know, he reasonably would have had a chance to be part of this rotation last year. Um, came in the spring training with a back issue, wasn't able to lift weights, has really, you know, this pitching once he's back in AAA, like in the low 90s, which is not what you want from D.L. Hall. Um, so he goes down to Florida, builds himself back up so he can pitch in relief the way that he did in the, you know, in the second half of the year. And honestly, he was probably – he was probably the Orioles' best reliever after Felix Bautista went down. I mean, if you look at his baseball savant page, like there's red all over, red all yeah. over. It is, it's super impressive. Um, I think he's that, a great reliever, and I think that's sort of the, yeah. the overall point is. I mean, he's a great reliever. It does seem like that's been his projected role for a while, and it does seem like maybe that should just be his role. The Orioles should just leave it, should they not? Yeah, yeah. I think I think that what you saw in the second half is is, is you know a pretty strong case for that. It, if you are going to have him be built up in spring training, which is what teams do with guys anyways, you know, he's going to pitch, you know, he's going to pitch one inning and then he's going to pitch two innings and they're going to say, we don't really know what we're doing with him. And either a week later he's going to start or he's, they're going to say he's throwing, you know, bullpens on the backfields and he's going to just be a reliever. But if you're going to hold on to the starter hope um, while he was pitching with that diminished velocity in triple a earlier in the season, um, obviously not able to just go out there and blow guys away. He had to figure out how to get guys out in the strike zone with the secondary pitches. And I think you saw a little bit better of that in relief. The, you know, the counterpoint to that is that guys who can't throw strikes as well as you want them to as starters typically can, because it's like easier to do so out of the bullpen. Yeah. And again, the situation's gonna, you know, kind of play itself out, but I do think with what he showed in relief last year, given his career long struggles to throw strikes, that probably is the best role for him and, and really where he'll be most valuable to the Orioles. John, there are two infielders that were in this top 10, Joey Ortiz and Connor Norby, who are good players, but they're often seen as trade candidates in part because, as you mentioned, the Orioles 
appear set with their infield present and future. You look at Gunnar Henderson, you look at Jordan Westberg, you look at Kobe Mayo and Jackson Holiday, all these guys who are super, super talented. You know, Ryan Mountcastle at first base as well. That it seems like the Orioles infield is set and it would seem like these guys are trade candidates. What is the current outlook for both of them? And do they project to be more contributors? Could they be average regulars? What, what do they project to be and, and what could they potentially bring back in a trade? Because it does seem like that's really where they might be able to serve the Orioles best, at least from the outside looking in. Yeah, you know, if, you know, if these two players played in other organizations, hey, they would, you know, Joey Ortiz would have been in the big leagues for most of last year. Um, and, and Connor Norby would have big league time, time as well. And maybe meaningful contributors and maybe the kind of guys who you'd be talking about building, you know, a top tier starting pitching trade package around, honestly, because the Orioles have players who are above them, you know, talent wise and prospectless wise, they are tough guys to build trades around. And I think it's really challenging because at this point, they're almost more valuable to the Orioles than they'll be to anyone else. Um, I think they need them as depth. I think they need them, you know, to continue to perform and be what they are, but it's a really challenging position for the players to be. And um, they know what they know. They know what's going on. They, they look around the, the clubhouse and spring training, or even AAA, and they're like, "Wow, how are we all going to get up there? Where's our Where's all of our places?" And to think that you know, two guys who you know had pretty good seasons in AAA, both played a full year in AAA, um, didn't do anything wrong, are in this kind of limbo. Is kind of it's kind of an unintended consequence of what the Orioles, you know, really did over the last 12, 16 months, which is kind of hold on to all their chips and, and hope that, you know, they appreciate and value a lot of them did. Some of them didn't. And some of them are kind of just in that middle ground. Like, what do you do? What do you, what do you do with these guys? So, you know, both those guys will be in spring training and they'll be, you know, in theory fighting for, for roster spots, big league roster spots, as long as they're still in the organization. It's just hard, hard to see. It's hard to see a path. Again, that's nothing to do with them. It's just who's around them, who's already there, who they're competing with. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I, I do think it'll be interesting to see what these guys can bring back in a trade package because they both certainly do enough where you can say there's big league value there. Ortiz defensively, especially at shortstop, Norby with the bat. John, in terms of the pitching depth of this organization, you mentioned that they made some trades for some arms, and we've started to see some of them really start to move up the prospect rankings, move closer to the majors. Chase McDermott was acquired from the Astros in the Trey Mancini deal. Cade Povich was acquired from the Twins in the Jorge Lopez deal. Seth Johnson was acquired from the Rays. So a lot of these guys were acquired in trades. McDermott's in the top 10, Povich and Johnson just outside. You also have Luis DeLeon, who is a lefty that got some good reviews last year. Would you say the organization's pitching depth is improving? Because it does seem like there's more guys now where you can say, yeah, they have a path to the majors. Whereas before, you were kind of really, really banking on some guys that you didn't feel great about. Yeah, absolutely. It's improving. Um, and, you know, you know, I talked to scouts who, you know, don't have, didn't have anyone written up in the entire organization as a starter other than Grace Rodriguez. So, so like, there's a flip side to it. But I think that the guys, as you mentioned, represent a real impressive, like, top group of developing pitchers and also I think represent a lot of what they want out of their pitchers. You know, McDermott has really, really good stuff. And once he got to AAA with the automated strike zone, he was kind of like forced to, to bring his stuff into the zone. And he has really, really good weapons in the strike zone. He had, I believe the lowest batting average against in all the minors last year. 
Um, I don't know if it's lowest or second lowest, but he's really hard to hit when he's in the strike zone. They love guys who can get weak contact, swing and miss in the strike zone. Cade Povich, ton of weapons. Um, command kind of wavered as the season went on, but again, ton of weapons, hoppy fastball, multiple weapons to both sides. Seth Johnson, super athletic. They love their athletic pitchers. Um, the stuff was pretty much back after Tommy John. Um, I think if he had pitched a full season, um, he might have been ahead of he might have been ahead of the you know the guys in front of him on the list pitcher wise um, in that McDermott and, and Povich category. I just think it's really impressive with the live arm. He could be in the big leagues quickly depending on what their needs are. And then De Leon, you know, this is like you mentioned, a burgeoning international program that has you know only now. I've just started to push talent up through affiliated baseball with Sayo, obviously the headliner, but they only got good reviews too. Um, and, and still very young. So I think that I think there's a lot of emerging talent. I also think there's a lot of high floor guys, you know, in, in their high minors rotations. And I think that's really, that's really helpful because when you look at big league bullpen, it's a lot of guys who you know, got shifted from like the rotation as they were getting up there in their minor early careers. And, and I think that they're going to have a lot of serviceable depth real soon. And kind of the next step is that of that is like, who are the dudes going to be? You know, I, it's hard to see who the dudes are right now. I think I have a couple of, you know, punches, but I but what you're going to see right now from this pitching program and pitching kind of apparatus is a lot of very useful depth in the near future. Yeah, absolutely. And again, you need arms, especially to get through a full 162 game season, expanded postseason. Now, it, there's no question. You always need a depth of arms. And and even if some of these guys don't project to be frontline studs, you mentioned Povich, McDermott. You know, walk rates over five per nine. It it's tough to see that translating to a starting role in the majors. The arm strength should at least help in some sort sort of role. And and you need that over the course of the season. John, any final thoughts here as we wrap up uh, this Orioles Farm System podcast? I don't think so. I mean, I'm, I think every year we do this and every year I say it after I do the list, I'm like, man, this is going to be a lot different next year. And it never is. Um, but really, really, I think the next year is going to be different. You're going to see, you know, I think there's obviously going to be some graduations. I think, you know, you would imagine there's some trades if the Orioles are half as good as they expect to be. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's really hard to sustain what the Orioles have done. I know they're going to have, I believe three picks in the top, like 34, 35 in this year's draft. That'll help. But this is going to be, you know, there's a lot of pressure on this major league team to continue um, on this upward path that this organization's on. And I think from an organizational, like, development standpoint, it's going to be really, really fascinating to see how they they work to keep this pipeline going. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be uh, an interesting year to see how everything progresses for the Orioles and the major leagues, as well as what talent continues to matriculate through the farm system. It's certainly been a a pretty good run of prospects coming up through the low minors up to the majors in recent years, and looks like that's going to continue flowing. John, thank you as always for your insight. We appreciate it. and uh, Thank you for joining us. Awesome, man. We'll talk soon. All right, everyone, that'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For John Mioli, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.